0: Became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. What do you think of when you think of glory? What comes to mind for you? A quick search of newspaper headlines brings up results about sports trophies, singing competitions, the Oscars, uh, and, and then a myriad of stories about the glory days of various, well, athletes and teams, singers and actors. And so from this, it seems that our culture's definition of glory, if we trust the headlines, probably coincides uh, with fame, fortune, popularity, and publicity. And no matter what your understanding of glory is, it is probably related to your definition of success. What is your definition of success? You see, glory is the thing that we are all pursuing by its very nature, We're all looking for success, but every person will have a slightly different definition of what that means, of what that looks like, and just like every culture will have its own definition of what glory looks like, and so our culture is one driven by celebrity, And so glory generally means becoming a celebrity, some famous athlete or singer or actor or something like that. Uh, But the ancient Greek culture from which our dwelling passage comes was driven by philosophy. And so for them, glory meant having the best explanation for something, the best argument for something. And you see, rather than football games, singing competitions, or a never-ending supply of streamable entertainment, the ancient Greeks had the Lyceum, which was the place for philosophical debates to take place. Most ancient Greek cities had some kind of public forum right in the middle of it, where these kinds of conversations would take place. They were public gathering spaces for conversation, for debate, for learning, for constructive arguments. It was kind of the, the television or, or the Facebook of that day, except it didn't have algorithms that only showed you what you wanted to see. And so it was, it was places like this where philosophers like Socrates, Plato and Aristotle honed their philosophies, you know, and they gained such a following and rose to their prominent place in Western culture because in places like this, they listened well and they spoke well. They offered logical explanations to the questions of their day, and they refuted all kinds of illogical explanations that others were trying to argue their logical explanations came to be known as wisdom, which in Greek is sophos. That's the Greek word for wisdom. And their practice came to be known as the love of wisdom, which in Greek is phylo-sophos. That's where we get the word philosophy, the love of wisdom. And so all of this is to say that in that ancient Greek culture, offering a logical response was their definition of glory this was glory to them now another culture that our passage is rooted in uh, that's even more ancient is the ancient hebrew culture and their idea of glory was rooted in their god who created the heavens and the earth who had spoken to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But their idea of glory was rooted most in that great story of the Exodus. Because God had delivered them from oppression and from slavery in Egypt with great and powerful signs and wonders. And then after they were finally set free, there was another great wonder whenever God parted the sea and they were able to walk across on dry land. And all of these great signs were manifestations of glory. But that wasn't it. After all of the signs in Egypt and their miraculous deliverance across the sea, the greatest sign of glory was yet to come. They gathered around the base Of Mount Sinai. And Moses, who had led them thus far, journeyed up into the cloud at the top of the mountain, where he met with God, and God gave him the law. And the law was not just a list of rules, it was a covenant. It was a promise between God and the people, a sign of grace. And glory. And after the law had been given with instructions for their rhythms of life, their work and rest, celebration and worship, they constructed a tabernacle, which is just a fancy word for a portable sanctuary, a a tent. And this was their place of worship as they journeyed and, and wandered in the wilderness. And we find a description of this moment at the very end of the book of Exodus. In chapter 40, it says, Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle, an altar, and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work of putting up the tabernacle. And it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It says Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on top of it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so from this point on, the tabernacle and later the temple would be the place where glory dwelled. From the ancient Hebrews, this was their definition of glory, signs, wonders, and the powerful presence of God. So as we think about all of this, it's really clear as we hear the opening of the words of John that John is keenly aware of both of these audiences that ancient Greek culture, as well as the culture of the Hebrews, the Jewish people. And it's clear that he is speaking to both of them. Because if you think about the Greek philosophers, remember that their idea of glory was being able to offer the most logical explanation. And that word, logic, comes from the Greek word logos which was an underlying idea in much of Greek philosophy. The Logos was this ordering force behind all things. It was the logic that all the philosophers were searching for. And in our passage, that Greek word, Logos, gets translated into English as word. And so all of those Greek philosophers would have heard the opening verses of this passage. In the beginning was the Logos. Through the Logos, all things were made. And without the Logos, nothing was made that had been made. And they would have heard that and would have all agreed, yes, the ordering force behind all things has always existed it does give order to all things everything exists in conjunction with this logos and so they would have heard the passage and it would have spoken deeply to them and then similarly the the hebrews the jewish people would have also read it and understood it they would have seen the mention of moses toward the end of the passage and remembered that God gave Moses the law, they would have thought of all those great signs and wonders that God had done through him in Egypt, the Red Sea, at Mount Sinai, and in the tabernacle where his glory dwelled. So the opening of John was written to address both of them. And they both would have read it and resonated with it. but both would have arrived at verse 14 and been absolutely awestruck and confounded. For the Greeks, they would read, the logos became flesh. What? But the logos can't become flesh. It's this ordering force behind all things. It's it's the thing behind all flesh. The whole point of seeking logic is because all of our mere flesh is so illogical. So we have to move beyond it through this pursuit of wisdom, of philosophy. And then for the Hebrews, verse 14 continues. It says, He made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory. And again, we have to peer beyond the English translation into that original Greek Any common Jewish reader of the day would have been familiar with the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, which was called the Septuagint. And and as they read this passage from John's Gospel, which was in Greek, they would have immediately thought of the Greek translation of Exodus 40, which we just read together. Because of all the Greek words that John could have used to describe living, staying, dwelling with, the one that he used in verse 14, for he made his dwelling among us, is the same word that is used to describe the tabernacle in Exodus. So you could read this verse, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And then it goes on to say that we have seen his glory. Which again is that same word used in Exodus. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. But just like the Greek reader, the Jewish person would have been absolutely awestruck and confounded at this. Because The tabernacle has long since been replaced by the temple. And it's not among us. It's over there in Jerusalem. And what do you mean we have seen his glory? His glory was always covered with a cloud. We couldn't see it. And even Moses couldn't enter the tabernacle when it was there. Surely we can't see this glory. No one can. No one can look upon God and live, right? But this is the amazing claim of John. The Logos, the ordering force of all things, has become flesh. And that very flesh is the tabernacle of God where we can look upon His glory. And not only live, but find life. For the Greeks, this whole thing is a far cry from an airtight logical explanation. It's a mystery. And for the Jews, this is a far cry from some great and powerful sign or wonder. After all, it was only a baby laying in, of all places, a manger among the farm animals in the middle of the night. I want you to recall all the things we've been talking about over the course of this month. The word came as a quiet whisper. The light arrived as a soft flicker. The flesh he put on was vulnerable. And yet all of this, John insists, is glory. All of this is glorious. The very glory of God. Not logic and reasons. Not signs and wonders. Not fame and fortune. But a baby in a manger. This is the glory of God, and we have seen his glory. Recall the reading that we opened our worship with this morning. Lift up your heads, you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. The gate By which the King of Glory entered this world was Mary's womb. And he took up his reign in a manger. It's in quiet places and common ways that the glory of God takes up residence on the earth. And he continues to dwell in unexpected and overlooked places today. As followers of Jesus, if we keep watch, he might just transform our own ordinary moments into opportunities for glory. The cry of your child, the trip to the grocery store, the school across the street, even quiet moments of loneliness can become occasions for glory. As we listen for the Word, as we watch for the light, as we feel the vulnerability of flesh, we catch glimpses of the glory of God. God is here Among us, we have seen his glory. But it is in the most unexpected places. And it's so easy to miss. Many people in Jesus' day missed it, after all. Some asked him to perform miraculous signs and wonders for them. Some expected him to lead some kind of military revolution against the Romans. But these were not places where his glory would be seen. Instead, his path led toward the cross. The glory of God is always in the least expected places. From a manger among farm animals to the cross, between two thieves. These are the unexpected places of glory. Not where anyone would have ever thought to look. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. The very glory of God. So if the Greek definition of glory is found in philosophical arguments, And if the Jewish definition of glory is found in powerful signs and wonders, if the American definition of glory is found in fame and fortune, well, then I think the Christian definition of glory is found in the cross. Because the cross is the place that reminds us of the unexpected glory of God. The cross is what reminds us of the unexpected resurrection of Christ. And it is the cross that points us toward that day when Christ will come again. And this too is unexpected. Jesus described it as a thief in the night. The book of Revelation describes that day with the unexpected image of a lamb who was slain. The glory of God always appears in unexpected places, in unexpected ways. So as we draw to a close, I want to invite you into a posture of prayer. I want to bring you back to that first question. What do you think of when you think of glory? How do you define success? And then I wonder, how does the baby in the manger or the man upon the cross invite you to reimagine your own definition of glory and with that new definition of glory what are the quiet and common and unexpected places where the glory of God might just be waiting to be found in your life? What kinds of glorious things might God have been doing already by your side that you were never aware of? Where are those places of wonder? Those places of invitation that God is drawing you to? And in all of this, think toward this coming week and all that it holds. For some, it may be busy and full, and for others, it may feel quiet and lonely. For some, it may be joyful and merry. For others, it may be difficult and discouraging. Amidst all of this, where might God's glory be found this week? Lord God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the word becoming flesh, dwelling among us, that we might see your glory. As we reflect on your birth, remember your death and rejoice in resurrection and all the more patiently long for your return. May we look to you, Jesus Christ, and see the glory of God. Amen.